the Cafe Media Network. You are listening to the Digcast with Cafe's Carl Diggler, brought to you by a 30-year veteran pundit. News. Family court. The discourse. Fatherhood. Digcast. Good morning, digheads. It's a holiday in the beltway today. As uh, on this, uh, this well, I guess this will be coming out after the vice presidential debate. But uh, we recorded an interview with a uh, punk legend, Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys. How do you know Jello Biafra? I'm a big aficionado of punk. I'm sort of like a punk pundit. J- I. How are you a punk pundit? You know, I go after both sides. That's not a punk thing. I'm really, you know, I'm like. Uh, I'm sort of like uh, Sid Vicious, except the queen is the budget deficit, and uh, anarchy, instead of anarchy, it's civility. Jesus Christ. Civility in the U.S., I want to, you know, I want to vote for no labels. Uh, Jello Bialfer is a seminal punk figure, uh, co-founder, lead singer of the Dead Kennedys, spoken word artist, co-founder of the label Alternative Tentacles, and lead singer of Guantanamo School of Medicine. I cannot think of anyone less qualified to interview him than Carl Diggler. Sometimes opposites attract. Okay. All right. Let's, um, okay, just try to be cool. I was born that way. All right, digheads. Uh, I have long been known as a type of punk rock pundit for my enthusiasm in taking on both sides of the aisle, taking them to task for partisanship and the deficit. Uh, I was also one of the first uh, sort of New York doll type androgynous pundits wearing, uh, bringing tight dockers to the scene. But we have another pioneer with us today, uh, the front man. From the Dead Kennedys, spoken word artist, mayoral candidate from San Francisco, Jello Biafra. How are you doing today? Hi. Yeah, you forgot a few things, such as the uh, current band is Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine. And, of course, all these years I've been doing the very struggling underground music label you contacted in order to find me, namely Alternative Tentacles. And if you put a .com after that, anyone can find the label. Releases past and present and other things and occasional weird little tweets and messages that will blow your mind. So I do have to ask uh, Mr. Diggler, are you uh, a brother of Dirk or were you spawned by Dirk? Well, not quite sure what you're asking, but uh, I have never met my You know who Dirk Diggler is. He's as real as you are. Oh, well, you know, in the the movie... How can you not know who Dirk Diggler is from Boogie Nights and that, uh, you know, that giant horse dick displayed in the mirror at the end? It had to go somewhere. Something had to come out of it. I was wondering if that was you. Well, I kind of consider myself analogous to Dirk Diggler. You know, we share a last name, and 
well, he has a certain type of genetic gift. I have a genetic gift. It's my which is my ability to moderate uh, my celestial vision and compromises, and my ability. Oh, sorry. My ability to predict elections. It may not be as exciting as Dirk Diggler's genetic gift, but it is something. Mr. Biafra, I'm I'm sorry for for Carl. Uh, we don't normally get uh, a uh, guest that's uh, I'm going to say cool. Uh, I, I, I'm Virgil here. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of your uh, of your music and uh, and your activism well, I'm as well. Sorry to disappoint you. I mean, I didn't know you specialized in uncool guests. Well, I mean, you know, we... I thought that was Bill O'Reilly's job, and if they turn out to be cool, he'd yell at them to shut up for the rest of the broadcast. Well, we've had we've had some great guests, uh, but you know, no punk guests. Let me put it that way. Uh, and also, Aww. you know, the interviews tend to go in directions that are about Carl's sexual neuroses and things like that. But you know, I was hoping that we'd have the opportunity to uh, talk a little about your uh, career and how it relates to the current political climate. The Dead Kennedys, founded in 1978. Uh, what were what were your musical influences? Oh, I, I think each person the band brought different ones. I mean, I was really down with the, uh, you know, the the wilder side of '77 punk going on there, and of course before that, the Stooges and the Pink Fairies and Hawkwind and whatnot, and then uh, bands out here who preceded us like the Avengers and Negative Trends, Sleepers, Still, Zeros, USA. Screamers from down in L.A., the best band I ever saw that never put out a proper record. And so it was coming from all over the place. Um, I'm so damn old that I uh, actually got to experience the 60s garage rock era when it was current. And commercial AM radio actually played local bands, which in the case of growing up in Boulder, Colorado, it meant the astronauts and from Denver, the moon rakers and uh, several more. Sugarloaf, I guess, got national, which is Green Eyed Lady. But my point being that I, you know, I, I, I uh, really loved the wilder side of rock and roll from the get go. And then when it got really boring and all, you know, adult rock and Eagles and Elton John and disco trek, I was very depressed as a teenager until uh, then punk happened. It was like, oh my God, I wasn't born too late. I was born at the perfect time. I want to jump in. And your brand was, uh, so, your brand was pretty political from the get-go, uh, you know, which like, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with, you know, I'd say most of those bands that you just mentioned. Ah, uh, well, what were you listening to instead besides yourself? Oh, you know, like I'm familiar with like uh, East Coast punk, like the you know the Ramones and the New York Dolls and things like that. Johnny Thunders, the Capitol Steps, and you know, like uh, what was that last one? What was that last one you mentioned? The Capitol Steps. You know, they're kind of musically not quite uh, what people consider. The yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry. Maybe the name was mumbled on purpose. I'm not sure, but I still didn't get the name. The Capitol Steps. The, the Capitol Steps is a uh, it's a, a group of former congressional staffers who do parody songs uh, about politics. Yeah, it's a very punk. Oh, I, I, I thought that I thought that was the upper crust who did that. 
you've never if you've never seen or heard the upper crust, you are really missing out. I mean, they've got Louis the Fourteenth outfits on, complete with the wigs, all flying V and guitars, and very ACDC sounding anthems about how much they hate peasants and love being, you know, privileged, drinking out of goblets on stage and songs like We're Finished with Finishing School and You Can't Get Good Help and Originally, it was a triple guitar band, but then one of them left to uh, write speeches for Bill Clinton, who was still president then. So they they really were and are upper crust guys. It, 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 it's quite an experience. I'll have to check that out. That sounds pretty cool. Well, that actually sounds like Hamilton. You know, the period costumes? Well, it, it, it's a different kind of music, and it came out of uh, underground music clubs in Boston rather than a... Uh, groundbreaking, successful Broadway musical. You were, uh, so in 78, like, uh, you were, you guys were, were uh, very political and you had, you had a great sense of humor about it. So like, what, uh, what informed that, you know, the lyrical content of, you know, what you guys started out doing? Um, what was going on, basically. You know, I, I, I was really glad when I got to San Francisco that there was an emphasis on, uh, you know, thought and political lyrics and the, with other bands as opposed to sex, drugs, and rock and roll or simply saying, uh, I hate my, I hate my parents or something like that. You know, it went a little deeper than that. And I, I had dug that because in addition to getting into music when I was really young, I also was a news hound from when I was really young at the same time. So I'm very grateful I got to experience the sixties as well as what came after it. I guess a deeper level than a lot of other people I've known, even peers I grew up with, you know, and sometimes they'll tell me, Oh, you remember more of my own childhood than I do. But, uh, you know, it's a triumph of modern corporate, uh, narcotic television of how many people my age, and I'm almost 60 now, um, have no tangible personal memories of Vietnam or even Watergate. We were 16 by then. It was on everybody's lips. And best reality show in the history of television. And Nixon was going down. You know, you think Donald Trump or George W. Bush are divisive. You didn't live through Nixon. I did. I, you know, I was, I was a child of the 60s. I was born in the latter half of the 60s. But no, it was a very turbulent time. Um, you know, just as a child gathering around the TV to watch the McLaughlin group, just all the social unrest about the deficit, John Anderson. I don't think the McLaughlin group existed in the 60s. Maybe McLaughlin himself thought he did, but uh, they didn't put that old toad on the air till later. He didn't quite fit the linear model of time. What does that mean? Yeah, I, I mean, you didn't really get all the whining and moaning about deficits until, um, you know, Nixon's people and those who came after figured there's got to be a new way to keep Jim Crow in place and keep the country divided both by race and by class and whatnot. And uh, so, you know, starting with, you know, well, maybe not even starting with, but you remember David Stockman, Reagan's first budget director, talking, you've got to cut this, got to cut that, we got to cut this, and later admitted, quote, nobody knows what these numbers really mean, and, you know, admitted he was just doing it for ideological reasons to stick it to the black people and stick it to these people. I mean, it was no 
big secret in Nixon's White House, and John Ehrlichman admitted later they started the war on drugs for racially motivated reasons. You know, we could get the protesters and all black people at the same time. You know, I'm sure Nixon had a lot more expletives than that, so I don't, I, I can't uh, channel the the unreleased tape just yet. But but the basic, but basically the the whole thing about deficits, every like every major country and government has been run at a deficit for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's the way economies work. I mean, there's also a theory that if Roosevelt hadn't listened to deficit hawks in the second half of the 1930s and kept going with, uh, you know, the original concepts of the New Deal, we wouldn't have had to rely on endless cold wars and other wars to keep our economy going ever since. I mean, in uh, you know, as much as people think he was all lovable and cool now, and who knows, maybe there'll be a hip hop Broadway musical about him too. But to me, one of the most dan- some of the long worst long term damage any president inflicted on this country was Harry Truman. Not just because you know he got the CIA started, and you, but the, the the way he made a decision that we needed to stay on a permanent war economy out of fear that another Great Depression would happen otherwise. So, of course, you needed an enemy to justify making all these expensive weapons that were never intended to be used. Voila! The Cold War. And, you know, they still desperately try to keep those things going. Oh, we need more nukes because of you know, big bad North Korea, or uh, we need to put missiles in Poland and the Czech Republic just in case Iran attacks Poland. I mean, I can't stop laughing at some of this stuff. Like when Donald Trump said in the middle of that first debate that he wanted to order China to invade North Korea, which is kind of like telling Mexico to pay for his, quote, big beautiful wall and stuff. I mean, I, I do hope you realize that if you're that concerned about deficits, that Trump is going to be just like Reagan and George W. Bush and putting pedal to the metal to make them worse. Well, I'm no fan of Donald Trump, uh, you know, among his the smaller things, such as the racial demagoguery and uh, threats of ethnic cleansing, but the especially the really big things like that. The deficit, the harassment of journalists online, Pepe frogs. And, and does the country really want to be represented in the world by a president who spends 450 grand a year on his hair? You know, I, I mean, what does he need that much of that goofy-ass do for unless it's, you know, he needs a pom- comb-over pompadour thingamajig that big in order to hide the white hood underneath, fold it up and stick it in there. So it's kind of like up on his head, like a foil triangle or something. If you had a real man in there, like a Jim Webb, he would be spending less time on his hair, more time on his muscles to properly represent us. Completely agree. I don't think I know whether I'd be running around following Webb, though, or not. What's wrong with Jim Webb? Well, he might be less dangerous than Trump, but he's still, um, you know, I personally think we need to roll back our not just our nuclear program but our entire military possibly even abolish it and you know we quit attacking the rest of the world they just might quit attacking us you know 
leave people in peace, leave us in peace. And, you know, Webb is like, you know, the, the conservative fringe of, I guess, the Democratic Party. But, uh, you know, that, that puts, I mean, most of the, the supposed middle-of-the-road mainstream Democrats, like the Barack star or the Hillary monster or whoever, you look at them politically, and in some ways they're actually to the right of Richard Nixon was considered something of an extremist in his day for very good reason. And uh, so I, uh, I don't have a lot of faith in the mainstream Democratic Party. Carl, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't your, um, doesn't your father work in uh, the military? Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of a, uh, it's a, he's kind of, my father is kind of a disruptor. He's technically in a contractor body that's officially sanctioned by the military, the American Reconnaissance Corporation. But uh, it's less the... I consider my father kind of like an Elon Musk or Uber of uh, of the military. He's in Syria now. He's in Syria. He's backing up our moderate, our moderate, re- our moderate rebel friends, uh, Jihad al-Nusra, uh, Army of Martyrs, uh, apocalypse jihad you're the first person i've heard call any of those people moderate i mean all news is affiliated with al-qaeda if i'm not they broke up. mistaken and you know maybe isis makes bin laden look moderate in a way but you know again shifting the argument so far to an extreme that even other extremists seem like moderate and the new normal um no, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not falling for that one either. I mean, what I would like to see, maybe your father can help with this, it might be a much more peaceful world if instead of trying to, you know, monkey with our elections from Russia or steal people's credit card information or whatever, if some of these master hackers were just able to hack into the Pentagon and the surveillance agencies and delete every last thing they know everything you know some some nut job decides they want to you know fire off a nuclear missile for the hell of it which a drunk nixon apparently threatened to do from time to time and subordinates uh, you know put a stop to that and uh, dick cheney wanted to drop the nuclear bomb on baghdad during the gulf war when he was defense secretary and got talked out of that one but uh, they couldn't do that anymore if none of the technology worked because everything had been deleted, you know, rendering it all moot. I, like, I know Carl talks about his father being working for the government since the 50s. I don't know how that's possible, but he served in Cambodia and um, the Suez Canal. Also the Panama Canal, Chile. Chile, he helped with their transition to democracy in 1973. Uh, uh, yeah, well, didn't that go well? I mean, they privatized all the schools. It was one of their little experiments, and they've been a mess ever since. There's been strikes and occupations of buildings going on to this day over what's happened to the Chilean education system because of Pinochet, which, of course, pales in comparison to all the people he murdered. Let me uh, wheel back to uh, your political career, which I, I think uh, informs a lot of what's going on today. 
1979, you ran for mayor of San Francisco, and your campaign is probably best known for a lot of stunts you did, uh, mowing the lawn of Diane Feinstein, for instance. Horrible. Uh, Diane Feinstein is a beautiful woman, <laughs> gorgeous older woman, a hero of the Beltway, and that is. It's an invasion of her personal space. It is harassment. It actually wasn't because I wasn't Horrible. mowing her lawn. She didn't have a lawn. I was vacuuming all leaves in front of her house. She was going to clean up the city. I thought she should clean up her own area. And the news organization <laughs> thought it was pretty amusing, so they showed up. It's probably best remembered for some of the stunts, but also for some serious issues that you brought up. Uh, for instance, uh, one of your proposals was legalizing squatting. Uh, another one was requiring police to uh, face voter reviews. Yeah, I mean, imagine how much less violence we would have from Ferguson, Missouri, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to New York City, to San Francisco, California, and others if the cops had to answer to the voters and were required to live in the community instead of them all clumping themselves together outside of town, us versus them, like the LAPD all living out in Simi Valley and the Bay Area ones all living out in Nevada and stuff. I mean, if you, if you ran, if, I, I mean, sure, sure you'd run the risk of, of electing an incompetent, but we do that with different people anyway. Look at George W. Bush and the dealer's high prices. Let, let me ask you this. If you were, you know, the same age as you were when you moved to San Francisco in 78, if you if you were that age today in 2016, would you go to San Francisco or would you go somewhere else? Uh, I would only go to San Francisco if I wanted to pursue a highfalutin tech career. I mean, some of these people, you, you, you know, one young, you know, startup guy said, hey, nowadays this Nowadays, the summer of love is a startup. You know, that's not what I want to be part of. I don't want to hang out with those people, let alone be controlled by them economically or otherwise. So, I mean, this was, you know, we're talking 15, 20 year pattern now where young teenagers are a little bit older chasing a dream. They don't go to San Francisco. They can't afford to. Used to be even bands would move here as a unit. They'd all come out and move here. And you don't see much of that anymore, either, if ever. I mean, some may move to Oakland, but more likely they're going to go to Portland, Seattle, or L.A. Uh, or Brooklyn, you know, uh, I guess. Brooklyn. But even Brooklyn's well, the, getting well, pricey now, too. Parts of it, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, Carl lives in Brooklyn, actually. Oh, uh, yeah, but I kind of got a deal on where I live. You know, you got to take that uh, that old newsman's edge when you go in and negotiate with a broker, and uh, you'll walk away happy. I actually think that uh, one of the silver linings to high rent prices is it's going to teach a whole entitled generation how to haggle. <laughs> what about the unentitled? There's more and more every day, and not just young people, but laid-off people and people whose cost of living has gone way up while their ability to pay for stuff has not. Well, that's very few of the coming generations. Uh, they do have a broad sense of entitlement. Uh, I, 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 don't think, I don't think science and math is going to bear you out on that. I mean, the big danger with all these people being deliberately left behind is all the, uh, the organized effort that's been done for years to make sure when these people get really, really angry, 
they get angry at the wrong people. You know, instead of going after Wall Street, they go after immigrants. You know, it's the same old thing. The way to solve these problems is to hate somebody who's even worse off than you. I mean, that's Rush Limbaugh, that's Donald Trump, that's Tea Party stuff. And, of course, uh, here we go back to Nixon again. Well, they never go after, you know, the real enemy. They don't go after uh, uh, ballooning Social Security liabilities. They don't go after family court. Everyone, see, all the powers in this country kind of convene so that we don't look at what is really ruining lives in this country, which is really making people's lives unlivable, which is emasculating men and separating children from their parents, from their fathers, namely, family court, because we're too busy fighting at each other tearing each other apart along partisan lines, never getting together to get anything done. They don't want more things like Simpson Bowls to happen because they don't want be more things like what? Simpson Bowls. Oh, God, get that out of here. That's just Paul Ryan masturbation fantasies of turning, you know, getting rid of capitalism and replacing it with feudalism. You know, he and his buddies and the Trumps are all the Baron's Lords and Emperor Ludwigs and the High Castles. The rest of us, as Bill Maher can put it, can just go forage for food in the woods. That's their attitude. I mean, Simpson Bowles was a very, very sick joke. I mean, the one good thing that came out of that is Erskine Bowles was exposed to being such an asshole that he lost a Senate race he was expected to win in North Carolina. I mean, in a way, that's what corporate Democrats get for nominating such a snake in the first place. They don't want to vote for the Republican in disguise. They'll vote for the real one and get some, oh, what's that guy's name? He's, he's running for re-election here, I think. He's a, I can't remember his name, the North Carolina guy. But, you know, uh, he Richard had, Burr? Yeah, Richard Burr. Much rather have Raymond Burr, but he died a while back. Well, I completely disagree with your characterization. Uh, first of all, Erskine Bowles may have appeared as you say as an asshole to people, but that's part of his that was part of his joie de vivre and part of his force of character. You know, people thought that General Patton was an asshole, but he was. it takes a it takes sort of it takes a polarizing bold man to affect these broad changes. Well, in other words, you're Second, saying people like Patton and Bowles and Feinstein and and by extension Trump or somebody, they're cool because they cut corners to get things done. The end justifies the means. I mean, there's no better example of that right now than Erdogan in Turkey or uh, maybe the worst, these more recent, uh, you know, demagogue dictator types who actually seize power, unlike, you know, National Front in France hasn't seized power yet, but Duterte in the Philippines has, and he's running around killing people. Sure, he's getting stuff done. Sure, he's forceful, but he's also, you know, a, a genocidal madman. Well, I'd first like to point out that Donald Trump is totally different from Erskine Bowles in every way. But as far as your point to Erdogan, I myself am a supporter of Fethullah Gulen and his, uh, the innovative stuff he's doing with charter schools. I think it's very cool. His interfaith dialogues remind me of... Uh, <laughs> Of the no labels movement, he I kind of considered Gulan a Turkish Ron Fournier in a few ways, but uh, 
There is a, the, yeah, the Turkish a cab murderous... driver who fled the country to Berlin and was driving the taxi with me in it to the airport. He labeled Gulan a fundamentalist extremist who had more in common with the Taliban than he did the democracy. The guy was no fan of Erdogan, but he felt the the more extreme Islamic fundamentalism that he alleged this guy was pushing was actually worse. Well, people, people have long accused Gulan of being a secret Islamist who harbors genocidal views about the Alevis and Armenians, but, uh, you know, People also accused uh, Senator Alan K. Simpson of uh, numerous ethical violations that turned out not to be true. I kind of think it's people that are jealous of Gulan's ability to uh, cross the aisles and get things done. <laughs> what kind of aisle are you even talking about, or is it actually a ditch? Well, I mean, I mean I, I'm all for with this Tea Party-dominated houses of Congress, I'm all for people who are willing to cross the aisle to them as long as they bring grenades. No, no. See, that is not how you defeat... You do not defeat hate with more hate. You defeat hate with civility. You defeat, you defeat it by, you know, okay, so you, you know, you're famous for saying... Nazi punks, f off. Well, well, now it's you know, not. I think well, is, now we've changed it. It's Nazi Trumps, fuck off. Well, what I think is you should go Nazi punks. You don't know how bad you look. Nazi <laughs> punks, you better. Nazi punks, you have committed an ad hominem. That sounds fast. like a lecture from a middle school principal, like the one I got that 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 God wanted me to try harder in PE. That was my first experience with a fundamentalist. Carl really does give off that principal vibe, you know, like just, I don't know, his pants are all hyped up, you know, awkwardly. He's, you know, always kind of just lecturing people, shaking his finger. Well, yeah, they're my famous rants, you know, like when I, you know, like in the show Newsroom. The reason Simpson Bowles went nowhere was it was too blatantly cruel to the people who needed help the most. As I say, too much of a thinly disguised masturbation fantasy for Paul Ryan types. That's all it was. The reason that Simpson Bowles did not get that far is because too many people in the partisanship industry, too many people whose livelihoods depend on decreasing civility, saw themselves threatened by it. It's kind of like, you know, we were warned about yeah, it. Yeah, how how stable are things going to be if you follow that or Paul Ryan's budget and you cut even more benefits for poor people, even make make it even harder to find housing, make it even harder to get an education in anything but a corporate private school or a religious indoctrination school. And, uh, people will get madder and madder and madder. You won't be more stable unless you have a, uh, a really nasty police and military machine to back it up which, of course, they've already been trying to put into place with all the supposed surplus military weaponry that's finding its way back from occupied Baghdad to local police departments like Ferguson. You know, why does every little police department need a SWAT team? Why the hell do they need one of those MRAP vehicles or tanks or whatever? The answer is they don't. It's just a way of militarizing the police in an ongoing 
standoffs, which occasionally erupt into, uh, you know, the threat of a war by the police against the American people. Just about to uh, wrap up this interview with uh, a guy who has uh, taken his nihilistic attitude to things like budgets and bipartisanship. Really, uh, really illuminating. Well, I, I um, you know, I, I'm all for a two-party system. I just wish we had a second one. To quote Jim Hightower and many others. We do. It's called No Labels. It's the partisans <laughs> and the no labels. Well, three, if you consider Americans a lot. Yeah, I hadn't heard of no labels actually being a political party except now, so it might be a figment of the old Diggler imagination. But, I, think, uh, I think you might like it. There was a party in the 19th century very similar to the Tea Party called the Know-Nothings. They really called themselves the Know-Nothings. Well, that's kind of like... Uh sort of an amalgam of Bernie and Trump voters, but uh, I guess you could call the the no-labels the no-everythings. I don't know. You, you'll have to flesh that out on another program. Uh, Joe Biafra, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Well, good luck navigating your, navigating your way out of the, the skinflint budget wilderness. Thank you. And you ain't going to get educated at a charter school, either. (laughs) All right. Bye for now. Well, he certainly did not know how bad he looked. You thought he looked bad. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know. He had a lot of very interesting points to make. Uh, I appreciate him coming on. Um, it was very nice to, you know, talk to him. This guy who, you know, in the in the '70s, he did this very political punk music with a, with a sharp sense of humor. You know, like, you know, like "Holiday in Cambodia" is it's a song that's just lampooning these, you know, awful yuppies who have just terrible opinions about. Uh, things like foreign policy you know just these idiots in suits oh you did so like when capital steps do uh marco number five a little bit of marco in my life you know like that like you know political satire. you didn't listen to the song you don't even know the song yeah no yeah it's uh, it's like a parody song it's fun yeah okay well um all right i guess that does it for the show please rate and subscribe it on itunes